0: Hello and welcome to the London Writer's Salon podcast. I'm Matt.
1: And I'm Parl And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career.
0: These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWriterSalon.com for more information.
1: In this episode, we speak with Joanna Penn, a successful indie author and podcaster. Joanna has not only taken full control of her publishing career, she's also someone who has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to tools and platforms. For example, she came to ebook publishing, blogging, and podcasting well before they became popular. Now, we saw that Joanna was turning her curiosity to Web 3.0 and the blockchain and tools like NFTs and AI, artificial intelligence. So we brought her in to talk about being an indie author and also how authors can benefit from these upcoming technologies. So in this chat, Joanna tells us about the mindset needed to succeed as an indie author, but she also gives us a glimpse of what to expect from web 3.0 and related technology. She tells us how authors can enjoy and enhance their writing today using AI. So if you're curious about the future of publishing, you'll love this episode. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Joanna Penn.
0: And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Joanna.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and talking to you today. And uh, yeah, lovely to see so many people from all over the world. I'm in Bath, southwest of
1: the UK, if anyone was wondering. Lovely,
0: Love it. Thank you so much, Joanna, for being here.
1: And it's clear to us that you are, from all your body of work you have, that you're not only entrepreneurial, but you're incredibly creative and you seem to be led by your curiosity. You follow the different interests as it interests you. I'm curious about where this comes from. Is this a pen trait? Is this something you've always had personally? Yeah. I mean, I think What's interesting is
2: I think curiosity is something that we all have. I just think that we are educated out of it. And we're told by the education system or our family or society what we should be interested in. And that has resulted in a whole load of problems for a whole load of people. But I think what happened I got to sort of my mid thirties and I was really unhappy in my job and I didn't feel curious. I didn't feel creative. I was stagnant. I just, I hated my job, didn't know what to do. And the first thing I did was start tapping into that curiosity. And the, if people listening, if you feel this way, it's about noticing what draws your eye. So obviously we're all book people. So we'll go into a bookstore, but there's lots of books in a bookstore. Where do you go? So I was in foils the other day in central London and I go to the tech section and I buy books on AI and I buy, I also wander around some other areas, but I I follow my interest. And so I think we can all equate to that. But to me, it really is just a, a case of what are you interested in tapping into that and following that. And I really think that's the only way to be a long-term creative because that will change over time. And if I had still, like the first book I wrote was career change or what I later rebranded it as, but I really wanted to change my career. That was what I was interested in. And now, I, I mean, i I'm just not interested in that anymore. I barely, I don't talk about that book because I don't want to talk about that. Like, that's not interesting to me. But what I do talk about now, what I write about is how I want to both help people, but also what I'm curious about. And that is the only way that will keep us writing, I think, for the long term. Otherwise, just you'll just get stagnant and bored and what's the point?
0: (laughs) Joanna, I mean, looking at your body of work, it's so impressive. I mean, we've both been following you for about a decade. And it sounds like you had a recent brush with COVID. And it had you reconsider some of your priorities. And maybe some of it was about taking a breather and taking a break. And I'm curious, and maybe we're all curious, you took some time off to walk the El Camino from Porto up to Santiago de Compostela. Were you able to switch off? And I'm curious how that experience, did you get what you were looking for from that experience?
2: Well, it's funny because just this morning, i am been hand editing my podcast. I've got two podcasts, the Books and Travel podcast, my episode about the Camino will go out Thursday. So in two days time. So I was just editing that this morning because the gifts of pilgrimage take a while to arrive. And I now feel I can talk about it a month later, but yeah, I I got COVID the Delta variant last July, like a year ago, last July. So it was quite a while, but I'm also you know, a woman of a certain age. I'm going through a lot of emotional and hormonal changes and all of, plus the pandemic and the mental health aspects of the pandemic, all these things coalesce for me into feeling like, uh, you know, we always think there's more time. We think there's going to be more time to do the things we want to do. And I've been wanting to do the Camino for over 25 years, basically, since I was at, at college where I studied theology. I'm not a Christian, but you know I've read a lot of books of this and I've done several pilgrimages over the last few years. And so when I lay in bed with COVID, I was really pretty sick. And I thought, if I die now, what will I be really annoyed about? And it, the one thing was not doing the Camino. So that was the point where I said, I'm going to do it. And I think, I hope for people listening, I mean, it also has reflected in my, the books I want to write. So How to Write a Novel is my latest nonfiction book. I've had a draft of that for maybe five years, but I wasn't, I just felt like I didn't know how to coalesce it all into a book. And often when we're writing, it is hard to kind of corral the chaos into something that's worth publishing. But when I, last year, I was like, right, the, I want to write that book. And there's another book I've been talking about many, if people are in my audience, the shadow, I call it the shadow book. And it's about writing from that darker side of the Jungian shadow. And that's the book I'm going to write next year. I feel like the pilgrimages have really helped me commit to writing the books I consider important and that make me curious, even if they won't sell. So the book I'm writing on pilgrimage, let's face it, how many people want a book on pilgrimage? (laughs) Well done. Great. I'm glad you want one, Matt. But it's funny because I feel like it's a very important book for me to write as part of a sort of memoir. And it feels like a book I want to write because it's important and it might help other people going through transition in their lives. So yeah, uh, in terms of getting what I wanted, I achieved a life goal, which let's face it, if you want to achieve a life goal and you think, oh, I'll do it someday, it may not happen, so I uh, hope people listening commit to that book, commit to that trip, go to that place, meet that person, whatever it is. But yeah, life's too short, really, isn't it? And also, when I was walking the Camino, the Queen died. Obviously, the Queen was old, and that was not unexpected that she died. But uh, you guys and me and most people listening, the Queen was part of our entire life. She was her images were on the news, and I walked as she died, and then I walked into Santiago on the day of the funeral and the coffin got lowered and I was like oh my goodness life i mean her life was really long but it's interesting actually seeing someone who we've seen in the media for so long finally passing and thinking okay you know I'd love to live that long but hell I got to get on and achieve the things I want to achieve
0: it's such a nice reminder and it reminds me of when I first came across you and your work joanna it was around your career change book i was on a it, i called it an unplanned pilgrimage where I just took seven months from my job. This was back in 2012. And I I was just kind of wandering around Northern and Eastern Europe. And after I read your book, it was so helpful because it made me feel less alone. But I emailed you and I said, thank you so much. And so this is just kind of a fun moment to be able to speak with you now, coming from a, a totally different place. But what I'm curious about is, and we don't have to go into those early days of you writing that first book, but what I am curious about is when you set off to write your first book. This was back in 2008. Is that right? With-
2: 2006, I started writing. Yeah.
0: 2006. Mm. And you were also, had also started a blog and writing on the, the blog. And now, I mean, so much has happened. You've written, what, 15 nonfiction books, 19 novels, novellas. But I'm curious, at that point, when you started your transition away from an IT consultant and into writing, how far could you see? Mm. Could you imagine that, yes, I want to write, I want to have a whole bookshelf full of books, or did you? could you only see like those first few steps? I'm curious about that time.
2: Yeah, so this is where it's really important to have a model of where you want to go and people whose careers you can see in public and also working out how they make their money. And I often say this to writers, people are like, oh, I want to be a full-time writer like X. And often X will not be a full-time writer. They'll have a day job and they'll, like most literary fiction writers, for example, teach. Literary fiction. That's a very common career. So, when back then, so 2006, I was implementing accounts payable into large corporates. I was living in Australia, working for a mining company, and I was miserable as hell. And I wanted to change my job. I didn't know how, but I'm a super geek. So, I was like, oh, I'm sure there's a way to study this and then maybe write a book about it. And that's what started me off. But I saw I was surrounded at the time. So, 2006 was the beginning of blogging being commercial. So previously, blogging had been right about your cat or whatever. And then I knew in Australia, actual people who were making a full time living on the internet and also professional speakers. So at the time, I thought back in 2006, 2008, I thought I was going to become a full time speaker because I worked in corporates. I was like, oh, I'll go into corporates and make some money as a professional speaker. I joined the Professional Speakers Association, and non fiction books and speaking go very, very well together. You know, you guys have paid me for speaking at the London Book Fair, for example, and I speaking is part of my things I get paid for. So it was at the time I saw a future as a speaker and someone who wrote books to go with my talks, and also making money online. And then essentially, like we talked about curiosity, what I did was follow how that felt. So I then looked at the publishing industry and went, what, you mean I have to wait years to see this book out? That's not going to work for me because I need to start making money speaking. So I, that's when I got into publishing. This was before the Kindle. This was before print-on-demand um, made all the mistakes. And in making the mistakes, that's when I started the blog in 2008. I started the creativepen.com 2009, I started my podcast. And all I wanted to do was just share what I'd learned, which was, oh my goodness, did you know about print on demand? And that's essentially what I still do all these years later. It's like, oh my goodness, did you know about this? And oftentimes people don't know. So I'm curious and then I share it. And I also learned that the people doing well on the internet were people putting out contents, so like a podcast, like a blog, and for free. And then some people would pay for other things. And that has been the basis of my career has been content marketing and then having things available for sale that some people will buy and enough people buy stuff that it makes a good, a good living. So yeah, that's sort of going back in terms of how far I could see, what I could see was these other people. And I knew that if I modeled what they did, I could do that too. So What happened, what changed was that I then decided to start writing fiction as well. And that really is a very different path because I feel like with fiction, there is, and in fact, we saw it in the Department of Justice trial with Penguin Random House. They basically said the reason Random House is random house is because publishing is so random. (laughs) And everyone was like, no, really? And that's seriously, that's what they said. And so that's the problem with fiction i feel more than non fiction there is a proven path to make a living with non fiction and the surrounding services with fiction it really can be super random so when i added fiction in there are certain things you can do that make it more likely but at the end of the day i don't base a career on lightning strikes or luck so yeah that's kind of what it is so people listening if you want to Figure out the future, find people who are doing what you want to do, who are a few years ahead of you, and then model what they do. But definitely look at how they make their money because often it's not what they look like in public.
0: (laughs) Such great advice. And I mean, many people have the ambition to start things, but not many have the stomach to survive the highs and lows of doing this for 16 plus years. And I'm curious, what do you credit that commitment for you? Is that just like an obsession? Is it a what is that? What do you credit that?
2: It's still interesting to me. Like, I almost gave up my podcast in 2014 because it took a lot of time and effort and I wasn't making any money. And then I started a Patreon. And what Patreon gave me was a group, a community of people who are willing to pay for my podcast, even if they can get it for free. And that was really encouraging to me. And also, like, I just did a survey and I asked people why should I carry on? Like, What do you get from my podcast that they can't get from your podcast or from any of the billions of writing podcasts out there? Uh, because again, I when I came back from the Camino, I was like, right, how do I want to do things differently? And people said that they like my honesty, but they also like my longevity in the business, which most people don't have. And also the fact that I talk about futurist things, which uh, we'll be touching on today and that no one else is talking about that. And so that kind of gave me the sense of, okay, I can carry. it almost gives me a permission to carry on following my curiosity. So, you know, I had an episode on AI art last week. Now, in the past, I would feel quite doubtful about putting that out because even a year ago, people didn't want to hear about it so much, but now things are changing. And that survey almost gives me, yeah, permission to carry on and permission to write the books that I think are important. And so, yeah, I guess... Again, it comes back to, like we said at the beginning, if you lose your curiosity and you lose your energy, I hope you, I mean, you guys, you can feel my energy, right? If I didn't have this energy around this niche, I would not be doing this. And the moment I stop, it's because my energy is gone elsewhere. And the only reason I'm still doing all of this is because it still like turns me on in an intellectual sense. So yeah, I feel like that is so... Critical if you want a long term career, perhaps in anything. And I have been feeling like I was an IT consultant for 13 years, the last three of which I was trying to get out. And the thing is, right now, I've been full time for 11 years. And like you said, doing this for 15. If I don't pivot, I will give it up. And that happens to so many people in every industry because who wants to be doing the same thing year after year? And I will never be write, publish, repeat the same book over and over again. I I just can't be. So that would be my tip for people is you know, really... Oh, and this is another tip. If you want, in terms of branding yourself, it's really good to brand around your name or something more nebulous like the creative pen because I could become a painter and it would still fit into my brand. Whereas I know people over the years who've like, for example, I knew a guy who started a business like ebook formatting, or it was even something more specific like Mobi formatting. Mobi isn't even used anymore. So these are the things like think about how you can grow over the years and hopefully part of your audience will follow.
1: Great advice. I love that you have so many different interests and that you wear so many different hats. And I imagine it evolves over time as you follow your curiosity and as different aspects of what you do maybe become a bit bigger than others. I'm curious about just now, maybe of the last few years, which of those many identities, like fiction author, nonfiction writer, futurist, um, blogger, podcaster, which of those do you identify with more strongly? If there's any one that stands out or one or two that stand out for you?
2: Well, no, when I introduce myself, I say I'm an author and a podcaster. So at basis, I write books and I podcast and that that's how I define myself. But in terms of my business, I guess the phrase these days is the multi-passionate creator. And the whole part of that definition is that it is multi-passionate. And again, like I said, if I just write, write, publish, repeat, if I just did that for, let's say, crime novels, pff, I'd be done. It doesn't interest me. But this, I do feel this is very much a personality thing. And there are some people and very, very successful people who can focus in on one thing. Like there's a book called The One Thing. Which probably everyone's read, Gary, someone, but there's another book called Range, which you might have read as well. And I'm like, okay, and I when I speak, sometimes I have these two books up on the screen. I'm like, all us self-help readers. We're like, which one? Like, what the hell? And I think it's actually to do with your personality. If your curiosity is like mine, like ping-ponging all over the place, you you can't, you can't contain that. And if you do, you're just gonna be miserable. Like I was miserable in my day job. Doing accounts payable. And I was also a consultant. So literally every few months I would just repeat the same thing. I would just do the same project in another company. And it was like, oh my God. And they're paying me loads of money, but I was like deathly bored. And so if you're intellectually curious and you've got this kind of popcorn brain, you can't help but be multi-passionate. Now, if you are someone who's like, well, I just want to write a series of crime novels or I just want to write my memoir or whatever, awesome. <laughs> like you actually have. I guess, a a bit of um, a leg up or that's actually what people want you to do. But interestingly, right now, there's a really good interview with Colleen, or yeah, interview profile of Colleen Hoover in the New York Times this week, last week. And um, she's great because she said, I didn't want to be put in a box. She writes all over the place. And she said, I want to be Colleen Hoover. I don't want to be crime or thriller or romance or erotica. I want to be Colleen Hoover. And I think she just proves that you can be like, selling more books than the Bible this year (laughs) and right all over the shop. After publishing has been saying for years that you must stay within your genre, or perhaps you should just use another name. Now I'm someone who took that advice over a decade ago, and I have two names, Joanna Penn and JF Penn. And in a way I'm happy about that. And in another way, I'm like, Colleen, superstar, that's great. And now actually this year I've built a new site, creativepenbooks.com, And that has everything. For the first time in my career, I've put everything on one site. And that feels really good, actually. So I don't know if that's something I'll continue trying to do over time because, you know, I'm Joanna Penn, I'm JF Penn, I'm Joe Francis Penn on books and travel. I'm, you know, I'm these different things.
1: That really speaks to us.
0: Yeah. And as an independent author, you're able to do all of those things, whereas a publisher might want to pigeonhole you into some of those. And I wonder if we go back to basics a little bit, because this term independent author, which you've been championing for a while, basically, you did not wait for permission. You took it upon yourself. You built a connection with your readers and you started publishing directly for it, for and with them. But if someone's new to the term independent author, I wonder if you could just tell us what that means in your words.
2: Yeah. So some people use the term self-publishing, but I don't really like it because it implies you do everything yourself. And the reality is if you want to put a book, I mean, back in 2009, when the Kindle first kind of emerged, you could just upload the Word document from your thing, stick a really bad cover on it. And there was so little content that people would buy it. And like, I know some of those people who made millions back in the 99 cents years when there was no other content. But things are really different now. So in terms of being an independent author, I use professional editors, most of whom have been laid off from traditional publishing, because as these companies merge, they just lay off all their people, not all of them, a lot of them are laid off or become freelancers. So I use professional editors, professional cover design. And so my books are They can sit next to a traditionally published book on the shelf and you shouldn't know the difference, except that I want you to know the difference because I want you to care about me as the author. I don't need you to care about Penguin Random House or HarperCollins or whatever. Please care about me, the independent author. And This is something else that has changed in what we're calling the creator economy, which is... We want to buy from independent creators. You know, we go on Etsy or we want to buy an artisan loaf from a baker who actually baked it as opposed to from the store, from some factory. So people have changed their behavior quite a lot. Like my husband buys a lot of the sort of 3D printed things that people have made, in small batches. You know, we use Kickstarter. So being an independent author is just part of this movement, this creative movement in all ways to support creators directly. And what's also brilliant is the money you make. What, like I can be a successful indie author, and the, my sales figures would not be considered successful by a traditional publishing standard. But a traditionally published author might get ten cents from the sales of a book, and I can make selling direct from my store on, let's say, on a nine ninety nine ebook, I'll make nine dollars. <laughs> and a traditionally published author might make ten cents, twenty cents. They might even make a few dollars or pounds or wherever you are in the world, but So it just means that the economics change and also the relationship with the readers change. I have my email list, you know, I have my own podcast. So an independent author, I feel, is more of an attitude to going direct to readers and to use the tools we have now to sit alongside anyone else on Amazon or to build my own Shopify store, like I mentioned, to podcast, you know to reach people, to go on shows, whatever, have a YouTube, do TikTok, whatever you want. Colleen Hoover, in fact, started out as an Indian. She still self-publishes some of her books. She also takes deals with lots of other people. So yeah, I feel like you can do both. That's the other thing. I don't like the sort of, you must be one or the other. You can be completely both ways. And many authors are like, I've signed foreign rights deals for different languages. I've signed audiobook deal. Yeah. And so it really just depends on what you want for your book, what will make money for a publisher. And of course, publishers are businesses. So you only do get a publishing deal if it's going to make money for them and you, or if you like the idea of going direct to your readers, you like the idea of being in control of your creative work. And you're ready to experiment and, you know, join the community. It's a really vibrant community, the indie authors, really.
0: And you provide so much insight and and we're going to share links to all your books that help people on this path. But I'm curious if there's someone listening and they're not sure if this is the right path for them. Are there certain types of people that you feel like it's better suited for, for others or than others? (laughs)
2: yeah I mean and I said this when we had the London Book Fair thing I think it's about the energy again if you're listening to me and you feel like oh yeah that sounds interesting again it's your curiosity like if you're someone who likes to learn then we have to learn the writing and then we have to learn the business and either you learn you have to learn the writing whatever (laughs) you have to learn marketing whatever because even if you get a traditional publishing deal you're going to have to do marketing alongside them but to be an independent I guess you have to just be ready to experiment a bit and try things out. And I think that probably is the only prerequisite. If you feel like, no, I want someone to do this all for me, then yeah, you probably should go traditional But then often, as I said, you're going to find that they want you to participate in marketing activities anyway. So, but yeah, I feel I do hear some people who say, I do not want to go anywhere near the internet. Um, (laughs) Those people aren't listening clearly because we're on the internet, but I feel like if you don't, if you're like, oh, I hate technology, I don't want anything to do with it, then you won't be a successful indie author. So you do have to be interested and to try things out. Now you can absolutely fail. Like when I started on, um, when I started podcasting in 2009, I phoned up someone on a phone. We don't even have a phone anymore, but you know, phoned someone up and held a recorder next to the speakerphone and there was no Skype. There was none of that. And then I, I can't even remember what I put it out on, but that's how I started podcasting. And then over the years, things change. You pick up new new things. And, and now it's it's radically different, really. But yeah, I think that the idea of playing and not being scared of change and trying things out, I think that is an important attitude. But it can all be learned. This is the thing. You know, I have a degree in theology and I have another one in psychology. I do not have a degree in writing, publishing, marketing, none of that.
0: If using your books, maybe if you were were to recommend some of your books and someone wants to kick off on this journey, where would you recommend they start?
2: Oh, well, I have a free ebook, Successful Self-Publishing, right. so people can go there. Um, on my site, thecreativepen.com forward slash books, Successful Self-Publishing is right near the top. I update it regularly hmm. and it's a free ebook, also audiobook, also print. But yeah, that contains everything you need to know to get started. Um, and I'll, I will just suggest one of the comments, which is about, did I just get rejected by traditional publishing, which is why I went indie? no. Not at all. What happened was back in 2006, I wrote this book, What Became Career Change. And then I looked at the publishing industry. I thought, oh, I'll just write this like so many of us do. I'm going to write this book and then I'll just get it published. I'll make a million, leave my job and it will all just be amazing. But what happened was I looked at how long the publishing industry would take to get my book out. And that's when I decided to not even submit to traditional publishing. So that was back in Yeah, 2007, I guess, was when I decided to go self-publishing. But also I was in a community of speakers who all self-published because they sold books at the back of the room. So having the energy of a community is so important. So if you are someone who wants to do this, then like the Alliance of Independent Authors is a great community. 20 Books to 50K is a fantastic Facebook group, very lively. But yeah, and then over the years, what happens is as you become more successful, people approach you with deals. So you've got, for example, of Andy Weir with The Martian and then whatever his latest one was, You know, got approached after his ebook went viral. He then got approached for an audiobook deal. And then after the audiobook got really popular, he got picked up for film rights. And now he's traditionally published. But this is the thing, you put yourself out there and it's almost like, as you said, not asking for permission. And then people come to you, basically.
0: I'm curious, what would need to be in place for you to even consider going traditionally published?
2: Well, like I said, I already have taken those deals. Oh. So, for foreign rights, audiobook deal. So, yeah, I mean, I have nothing against traditional publishers. And I would, and in fact, I have an idea that I may pitch, but it's never, hmm. it's only for a strategic reason. So, for example, there's something I'm considering in order to essentially speak to another audience. So at the moment I speak to a lot of authors, but if I want to move back into corporate speaking, where you can get 30 grand for a keynote, then I, you know, having a traditionally published book is a step back into that. And I've talked to people about film rights for my novels and that kind of thing. So I'm not anti-traditional publishing at all. What I am, I'm more for the author. I am for the author, for the creator. And my goal, I think, is to empower authors so that they're not like, pick me, pick me and giving away all their rights. I know way too many authors who've signed contracts for either zero advance and like some royalties or very tiny, like two grand or something. That is a normal deal these days. And I just don't understand that. So it's all about the contract. And obviously this is not an interview about contractual terms, (laughs) but please, I've got, I mean, I've got interviews on this on my show with people like Ruth Ware, who's very well-known UK author, um, Claire McIntosh, you know, people who understand traditional publishing clauses as well. So yeah, just have a look and see what you want. So for me, it's about the empowerment of what I can do with my intellectual property. And that's what we're doing. Yes, we're writing books, but it is an intellectual property asset that you can make money on for the long term, unless you sign it all away for something that's not good enough. So I'll absolutely take deals when it's things I don't want to do myself, like translation, although I have done some, and film rights, that other stuff.
0: Makes sense. I'd love to turn to some of your latest curiosities. So a a few years ago, it seemed like your curiosity turned to future technology, Web 3.0, NFTs, AI, and how these impact and will impact, potentially impact writers and publishing. What shifted your curiosity in this direction?
2: Well, it's funny. The reason you're saying this to me now is because of where we are. I self-published before self-publishing was a thing, right? So I saw... What self publishing was going to be back in 2008. And I started podcasting in 2009. So this is not a new thing for me.
0: (laughs) That's right. You're a pioneer, truly.
2: Well, I just, okay. So this thing called the Clifton Strengths, I absolutely recommend that people do Clifton Strengths. And it turns out that my top strengths are futurist and strategy as well as input, which means I can take in a lot, and intellection, which is thinking about it, and learner. So I all of these things mean that I'm constantly, I read incredibly fast, I'm reading things, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm listening to audiobooks, I attend events, like I was at the um, Wired Live in London last week, listening to a keynote from Amazon on quantum computing. I mean, you think I'm ahead. I mean, I'm looking ahead now much, much further. And so AI, so 2016, I think it was, when with the game of Go, AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole, who was the head of you know the top player. And what was interesting about that was that the Go champions said that there was this move in the game that was truly original, truly creative. And it's the first time I'd heard the word creative applied to AI. And it was the advent of machine learning, basically, where we've gone beyond programming things and it outputs what you want to giving it loads of data and it outputs some weird stuff. (laughs) So I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so I followed my curiosity, started interviewing people on my podcast, and there's a whole load of stuff at thecreativepen.com forward slash future if people are interested. But essentially what's happened since I went full-time in 2011 is that the business model of being an author has changed a lot. And that is always going to happen. And I don't want to have to go back and get a job unless I choose to. And having a job is great. Everyone, if you have, you know, whatever you do to make money, that's fantastic. But what I'm always trying to think is how is this going to affect us both creatively and also financially? And how can we prepare ourselves for the future? So the uh, author I love, Kevin Kelly, has a book called The Inevitable and he talks about, you know, the future belongs to those people who work with the robots, not against the robots. And so that's really one of the messages I've been talking about. But, yeah, I, I'm constantly consuming. I mean, like I, I've got a book, another book recommendation here on my desk. Uh, this is an, an, one I've just picked up called Rule of the Robots by Martin Ford how artificial intelligence will transform everything. So I spend a lot of money on books. (laughs) I mean, what's so great is that we are a self-sustaining industry. Like you, I'd say everyone should write a book. Everyone should write more than one book because every writer buys so many books. So yeah, anyway, that's just a bit about where I find these ideas.
0: Yeah. And we're about to talk about some terms that might people's eyes might gloss over, but what you've done so well and we will share a link to it. Is you've written books around this topic. You've written, you've done podcasts. You have loads of articles, but we'd love to, given your wisdom and insight, hopefully help some people here understand these concepts a little bit better. And then we'll share resources to dig deeper. And one of these concepts is Web 3.0. And one of the things that helped me understand it is some I heard someone say Web 2.0 is what we're in right now. An example is Uber. Is a company, it has a bunch of drivers and people using it, but it's owned by a select number of investors and a single company. If Uber was a 3.0 company, it would be owned by the drivers. So that's something that landed for me. And I'm curious if there's anything as we dive into some of these terms in Web 3.0 in particular that has either helped you describe it, or if maybe if you're trying to help someone understand it, a writer here that feels like they have no aptitude for technology how would you describe it? And maybe what do writers, what should writers, what do we need to know about this, if anything? Yeah, two. Huge questions.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is a really big topic. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm 47. So I went to university when there was no internet. So the early 90s, I had to handwrite my essays. And then what happened, I started my first job and like again, uh, they talk about cell phones too. That so the iPhone came in in two thousand seven. So before that, I had a little Nokia. I didn't know why I needed anything more than a little Nokia, right? I mean, why? It's this tiny little one. Now and then the smartphone came along, and what you got to remember with the sort of the Web One was sort of the dial up modem days, and there was like a banner or a website that was very static. You couldn't do anything with it. So that's what they call web one, which was read. So web one is read. You would go onto a website, whether dial up or whatever, and there would be, you know, your WH Smiths or your Walmart or whatever. And they would just have a page, like it was just there, or your plumber just had a page. And then web two is read, write. So that's when blogging, podcasting, YouTube, social media, self-publishing, you know, independent music. I mean, all of these things, it's read-write. So I can read information on the internet, but I can also write information on the internet. And that kind of heralded this explosion of creativity. There was a, a Clay Shirky, I think it was a book called Here Comes Everyone in the early 2000s. And it was when the Long Tail book came out. It was uh, that kind of time and so now we're very used to this. We think this is what it is, right? Read, write. <laughs> so that's where we are. But Web3 is read, write, own. So, read, write, own. So, you mentioned an example there with ownership, but I think that's far too complicated, your example, because, yeah, that, I mean, in a much simpler way, let's talk about an ebook or a song. So, right now, if you buy one of my ebooks from Amazon, you can read it. But it's not yours. If Amazon shuts down your account, that book will disappear. You do not have any right to keep that book. You can't resell it. It is not your book. Whereas if you had bought a print book, that's your book. Like that copy of Rule of the Robes, that's my book. I can go sell it to someone else. So what Web3 is, and again, don't want to get into too techy, but blockchain, having digital assets that you can actually own. So I will be able probably, and I have minted some NFTs, but it's not it's not gone mainstream yet. It's going to be in the next couple of years. Oh, and just to say this is going mainstream, the company Ingram, which do a lot of the printing for traditional publishing, they just invested in an NFT book company called book.io. So I see this investment, which again, only happened in the last week. I see that investment as a signal that publishing is interested because Digital assets suddenly make it viable to make more money as a writer, as a musician, as an artist, because digital assets, instead of going to zero, which streaming and unlimited subscription have taken digital almost to zero, and the money that people are getting is just dropping and dropping with streaming and subscription, what we need is to be able to sell digital assets, digital products, an ebook that you actually Own and that you can resell. But let's say, Matt, I sell you a special edition ebook with extra scenes in or something. And you're like, this is awesome. There's a first edition, there's one of one. And maybe let's say you pay $100 for it. That's yours. But then when you resell it, the smart contract has in it a clause that means when you resell it, automatically I will also get paid again because the ownership originates with me. I'm the creator. So you get money because you resold it, but I get the money too. And this is something we have never had in the publishing industry. So if I resell that book, Rule of the Robots, Martin Ford gets nothing. The publisher gets nothing. But what this means is digital ownership and digital resale with programmable money, essentially behind it, is we suddenly have an ecosystem for secondhand digital assets. We have an ecosystem for collectibles in digital form, which is what the musicians are doing so well. We also have royal automatic royalty splitting. So for musicians, for example, it's almost like a crowdfunder where you can sell shares in your next song and then the people who own those shares get money. So read, write, own is where we're going. But what's interesting right now is what we're calling web 2.5, which is, you know, you might have an app on your phone, which is just a normal app on your phone, but it might have a blockchain backend and will enable the buying and selling of digital assets without the need for some of this more technical stuff. So in terms of what people need to know about, this is where it comes back to contractuals again. Do not sign a contract that says all rights existing and to be created for the life of copyright because that means you cannot do any of this stuff I mean like it also last week um meta used to be Facebook and Microsoft signed a deal for the headset for the oculus so my husband works on teams he works remotely he works on teams what that means is he will be working in a VR teams space because Microsoft is obviously the one who have teams and that's really interesting my brother is a digital designer for 3D fashion and he works in VR so this is not futurist again and remember I i mean I am early but I'm not super early on this stuff so yeah I think that the main thing for authors to remember is be very careful what you sign and even though it might not be happening now within a couple of years you're going to get a lot of opportunity and if you <laughs> rewind to when the publishing industry discovered ebooks, what they did was send around a sort of addendum to a load of authors saying, hey, uh, would you mind just signing this so we can publish your ebooks? And most authors went, oh, I don't care about that. That's stupid, like people are saying about NFTs. And then they just didn't get a great deal. J.K. Rowling, whatever you think about her politics, we're not going there. But J.K. Rowling said, no, do you know what? I think I'll do it myself. And she started Pottermore because she owns her digital rights. She didn't sell them for that extra addendum. And Pottermore is now like a $20 billion company with theme parks and this, that, and the other. So by holding on to her digital rights, and if you buy an ebook or audiobook of Harry Potter, it goes through to Pottermore, not to the publisher of the print book. So don't think this is some out of the way, pointless technology thing. These changes underpin intellectual property which impacts us because
1: that's the business. Yeah, this is all so fascinating. I love what J.K. Rowling did with Pottermore, just the fact that she took control of her digital rights. Um, on the point of Oculus, my partner actually works for Meta. Mm. And when she goes into meetings, often it's in, with the Oculus. So they yeah. meet in a virtual world and talk to each other's avatars, which is a bit strange. But in a very rudimentary way, it still works.
2: But it will be like this. I mean, it will. You instead of us being on Zoom, it will just be we'll, we'll have a headset and we'll actually be able to be physically there and see people. I don't th- see it's that much of a stretch from this flat screen right. to wearing glasses and to have a surround screen. That's why I think that I was like, oh, this is going to take years until Meta and Microsoft the announcement last week, and I went, holy shit! I think this is the moment. I think this is going to move it into mainstream because people won't do it for gaming but they'll do it for work. My husband will go into teams for work and he's like, "Oh, cool."
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's fascinating and you've you've written a book about this um which I've read and I really do recommend anyone who's interested in going a little bit deeper on this. It's called Artificial Intelligent Blockchain and Virtual Worlds. We'll share links to that afterwards. And within that you talk about a lot of things and you know, as we've spoken about earlier, there's each of these subjects we could spend an hour on. So there's a lot to go through. But one of the yeah. things that you're particularly interested in is artificial intelligence. Something that Kevin Kelly talks about is artificial smartness. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about AI, why you're interested in this for writers and how it can assist our creativity. Yes. Yeah, so I think the main thing to consider with any of these tools is that it's
2: an amplifier, and that also writers have always used tools. Like I said, I hand wrote my essays until because we didn't have computers back then. And now you can get, you can do it on your phone. I know people who write books on their phone. So we take advantage of tools. I'm sure a lot of people use Grammarly or Pro Writing Aid. I don't know how I managed without Pro Writing Aid. I mean, and that is built on AI. I'm sure people use Google. I'm sure people use Facebook. If you use TikTok, if you use Amazon, all these things, if you have a GPS in your car, all these things are AI powered. So people are like, oh, I would never use AI. Well, you already are using AI. (laughs) In fact, we've got captioning live transcription right now. That is presumably something like Otter or it's, it's live transcription by an AI. There's no human sitting there doing that. So the point is we all use these tools. If you're listening to this later on Spotify, powered by an AI algorithm. So every single piece of this is powered or assisted by AI. So you have this idea and then you can use these tools to amplify it. So I like, I just I mentioned before the AI art episode because it's much easier for people to see. So if you go onto openai.com, even now, I don't mind if people play while we do this, but openai, they have a, a tool called DALL-E, so D-A-L-E, and that is open right now. You can get, you know, free, free YOs and it turns your prompt into art. And there's another one called Mid Journey, another one called Stable Diffusion. There's loads of them, but you put in words. And then it outputs an image. Or you can go to my Instagram at jfpenauthor right now. And the first image, as we recording this, is an AI generated image that I. The prompt was a line from one of my novels. So it's much easier to see with images. And I know tons of authors now who are generating images to use in their Facebook ads, or their Twitter, or their Instagram, or whatever, because it brings. It's hard to sell books because there's so much text. So you need something to attract people's attention and images are often the way to do that. I know poets like my friend, Orna Ross, she does AI generated imagery from her poems and then the link is to her books. She's selling books this way. So when we think about AI, it is amplification. So in terms of writing, there's tons of marketing copy generators out there. Um, Jarvis, Jasper, I think it's called now. Jasper.ai is probably the most well-known. But that's all built on GPT-3, which again is OpenAI. Now, apologies for all the words. (laughs) And I know that this language can feel difficult, but a lot of these things are companies or, you know, like Microsoft, we know what that is. But yeah, so OpenAI has GPT-3, which is again an AI engine. And then we can use that to generate more text. So, for example, if I put in a line from or let's say a paragraph from one of my novels and then say, like hit enter or say write this in the style of or continue in a fantasy genre or whatever, it will carry on writing. You can also use it to do things like if I said an old table in a bar and then you kind of highlight it and say describe this is the function i love and then it will say okay so um, smell taste sight touch metaphorical details and it will kind of spark things in your mind like oh yeah I, d- I didn't even consider that so these there are ways to which you could say is just a glamorous thesaurus then there's things like ai for voice so i have ai i narrate my own audiobooks but i also have ai narrated audiobooks again spotify which owns findaway is introducing AI. They have an AI company. So there's loads of things happening within the author world that are changing how we do things. And if you're not using AI tools, especially if you're an independent author, you're kind of missing out on some of the stuff that's going on and and is only going to improve. So yeah, I would definitely suggest people start by looking at that AI art, the Dolly one. It's so easy to do. And then get the idea of oh that's what it means to work with the robots is to it there is no easy button there's no button you can press and out comes a novel or out comes an image in fact if you use we'll put a link in the notes to my tutorial on pseudo write which is a great tool for fiction writing in particular but I remember and in fact I think I do it in the tutorial I say like the man walked into a bar. And it says, that's not good enough. That prompt is not good enough. I don't know what to do with that because you have to, it's thinking about driving a car, right? Really nice, powerful sports car. It's not going to go anywhere unless you decide where to go. And so this is what you've got to think with all the AI tools. It's only as good as your brain because you have to direct it. It's your creative direction that matters. And that's why I'm not scared. You can tell, right? I'm excited about this. I see this as, again, an amplifier, something to jump in and use. And uh, yeah, I just think it's fascinating. But I also realize that many authors find this difficult. And like I said, I've done loads of long form episodes on all of these topics on the creative pen. So, yeah, (laughs) hopefully that's a good introduction.
1: That really is. And, And actually, as you say, just getting in there and starting is a really good point, and I've started uh, pseudo rights because of your recommendation. Oh, how's it going? Yeah, fun and interesting. I had the same message. You have to put in enough of a opening scene in order for the friendly bot to try and con- to do so. But you said fun, and that is brilliant because that's how I feel. It's so much fun, and actually, Matt's been going down a rabbit hole with yeah. um, AI-generated art. Oh, good. Which one are you using?
2: Midjourney journey
0: Mid-journey, yeah. And I a word of caution, if you're anything like me, I was up all night doing it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> my husband was too.
0: <laughs> yeah, It's almost like you have godlike powers. You can manifest something with your mind. And, and that really opened my mind to it and say, oh, okay, I get this more now. And it feels less scary and it does feel more exciting.
2: Yeah. And it's much easier with art, right? Than it is yeah. with the words, because you can see it's immediate feedback on your thoughts become things in the world. And remember, again, I think, I did I mention this before, that Microsoft is licensing Dolly. So Microsoft are launching a new tool called Designer, which they're going to roll out in Microsoft 365 which they're aiming to kill Canva, basically. Kill Canva with a new tool called Designer where every image will be custom generated. I mean, I've already stopped using stock photos. I'm now custom generating images for my blog posts. So this is the thing. The energy comes from giving it a go and just saying, oh my, and it makes you feel like a kid, right? Now, I'm sorry, writers are so serious. How much more fun is it to kind of co-write with this bonkers computer, like pseudo right. In terms of the copyright, this is a big issue. I will refer people to my episode on AI arts, but if Microsoft is licensing this for a new tool, I have every faith that Microsoft's got the best lawyers in the world and they're sorting this stuff out. So I fully expect the whole copyright thing to be sorted. But equally, I also feel that Anyone can use the images I generate. So I don't need copyright on that. If you are a graphic designer, if you sell your art, then that's going to become more difficult. But as you will find happens with most of these things, like with the writing in particular, I do not just take that writing and publish it, <laughs> <laughs> essentially. So I, what I want everyone to think is this is fun, give it a go, and let's see what shakes out. Remember, some of the things I'm talking about have happened in the last week. We are nowhere near this being any kind of maturity. But like you said, with Midjourney, what they're finding is this has hit some kind of collective consciousness and AI art is going mainstream. So I think it's going to drag everything else with it, basically.
1: What strikes me in quite a few of the interviews you've done on AI, and I forget which guest it was, it might have been Derek Sivers or the man from OpenAI, but they talk about how they could differentiate between the art that had been created by a true artist versus someone who wasn't an artist. So some sort of human interaction, like human editing of it, or like directing the robots in the right way. Mm, direction.
2: Yeah, for sure. And like I said, creative direction and curation, these are the key things. Like Matt, you said you spent all night on it. You would have generated, you know, possibly hundreds of images of which you will only share a few. Or like if you look at my Instagram right now, I generated, I don't know, maybe 20 images and then picked one that I wanted to share that I felt represented my vision as opposed to the machine vision. So I feel like this is almost creativity on steroids. We can just ideate fast. In fact, my brother, who's a 3D designer, he said they're using these things within their business to come up with ideas and then the designers will riff off those ideas, and that's what I find in the writing with pseudo. Right? I don't just copy and paste. That's boring. That's not what I do. I like getting ideas, and then I write my own stuff.
0: It's so cool! I ended up paying for Midjourney for a monthly subscription, and I was like, "This is the happiest ten dollars I've ever spent." Like,
2: it was. So- Me too. I did the same. <laughs>
0: I was like, "I've never felt so good about spending ten dollars to generate more images." But yeah, so. If any the main takeaway here is go play.
2: yeah, go play, and
0: then you can have your own your own take on it all. So I mean, one of the things that Paul and i we we talk about, we're building this community as a community first, and we try to create a place, a playground for people to connect and help each other on their journey. But we also realize that we're in a good position to maybe experiment with some of these these tools. Web three, what if we were to start our own little publishing house? Maybe if we shifted our membership to like a, version to like a 3.0 version. And curious if you had any advice or ideas for us, what we might explore and maybe what you're thinking about for your own community.
2: Well, it's this word community is really difficult. So I am more of a, it's really hard because there are both, there are strengths. Let's go back to strengths. Let's take it that way. My strengths are not around, like, I can't sit and help someone else. Well, I mean, I can sit and help someone else one-on-one, but it's not my interest. I have done some consulting and coaching, but I don't want to do that. I aim to be more like kind of the thought leader out front, driving people on. So when people, I do have a community as the creative pen, but they're people who listen to my podcast, for example, your community is very different. It's let's get together and do things. I don't have that. I do some live things and stuff, but I don't want, let's be clear, I don't want to run a community.
0: (laughs) It's a very deliberate choice as we're learning. It's um, yeah. To run a community is different than, yeah.
2: Yeah. I want to create my own things. You know, I want to make my own stuff and I want the freedom to be able to do what I want to do and I'll share things and try and be generous along the way. But Mainly, you know, I've got this thing here measure your life by what you create, which you can now get as a postcard on my site, <laughs> creativepenbooks.com. But it's it, for you guys, one of the interesting things about, say, blockchain and NFTs is that people can, let's say, buy an NFT token as access. So, NFT gated access is a very common use of NFTs, but it makes it quite also much more automatic. So that is definitely a sign of Web3. But in terms of communities in general, it's about serving your audience. So again, why I did the survey on my podcast was how can I serve you more? How can I be useful to you, but only in a way that works with how I work and what's best for me. So the biggest thing that people wanted was a Your Author Business Plan live thing. So I'm doing some of those. But for example, I do speak, but I'm an introvert. I'm serious introvert. And especially after the pandemic, I find it very hard. Like, I don't think I told you guys this, but before your event, before speaking on stage at your event, I mean, I was just broken. And then I was, I was broken afterwards too, because it's so much energy. And so I can only do very few live speaking things. So I was meant to be speaking in Las Vegas in November, which I canceled because I can't deal with it. Just too tiring. So when you're building something for other people, you have to serve them, but you also have to serve yourself. Or like we talked about at the beginning, you're going to give it up or it's just another job. None of us want just another job. We want it to be fulfilling. So it does fulfill me to help other people through like the AI art episode. I've had so many awesome tweets and emails and comments saying, oh my God, you just changed my life. They love it. Like you did. They're like, this is brilliant. So much fun. So I like helping people like that, but in the way that I can, and that should be the same for you, the same for people listening, create what you want to make money in a completely different way. If you want to, but you also have to look after yourself and figure out what works for you and what sustains you because people need you to be the best you. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, why do it? Yeah, I like that.
0: Such a good reminder.
2: Yeah.
0: It's a question we sit with often, actually. I think this leads to Parl's question.
1: Yes. Well, I, I suppose Matt and I, I mean, we've been running this for three years now, two years in this version 2.0, which is online. And we constantly, we're constantly checking in with ourselves about whether we still have the energy and desire to run this in the way that it works, you know, so that we want to feel good about everything we do. We don't want to ever feel burnt out or be doing something without the right energy. And as you've mentioned, you do this a lot for yourself. What sort of questions do you ask yourself? How do you check in with yourself and what's your gauge for knowing whether it's time to call something quits? Yeah, so it's
2: definitely the energy around things. So, for example, at wired um at Wired conference last week, I come out absolutely high. The energy you feel here through the screen, I am like ten x because I'm so stimulated. my and my mind, it's like my mind just lights up and all those neurons just go bang, 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 bang. I mean, I love learning. I'm a, like a super learner. So when I'm with people, and the name of the strengths test is Clifton Strengths. So it's been so validating for me because I knew these things. I just, I guess, I didn't know how important they were. In terms of checking in with myself, like literally with the podcast, it's, I just don't want to say the same thing as everyone else. So if you don't want, like, for example, when I first started talking about NFTs, I still get it. And in fact, we've had some comments you know, here around people are like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about AI, shut up, like literally. And I had a whole load of online hate when I started talking about AI for voice. I've had a lot of attacks and part of me was just like, seriously, I should just not talk about this in public. Um, or, But I actually remember when I first uh, came back to the UK in 2011 and how much I was attacked around self-publishing. I mean, I still get these random comments like, oh, but you, you must feel the stigma. And I'm like, what, what are you even talking about? Are like, you living like a decade ago? And so I think I feel like the, in terms of checking in with myself, it's, am I jaded? And when you feel jaded, you lose that energy. You also find yourself saying negative things. If you're saying negative things or feeling negative feelings about something over and over again, you met like when in my old day job, there was the, towards the end there, I was crying every day at work. I was going to the toilet and I was crying and that I'm sorry, that's not healthy. (laughs) And so, and my husband was like, just give it up. You just need to give it up now. And I took a massive pay cut. We sold our house, you know, but I was, I was done. And what I've learned since then there's another book, it's called, I want to say it's inescapable, but it's not that. It's by, um, I can't remember. I'm usually pretty good at this, but by a guy called Aidan McCullen. Maybe we can look that up while I'm I'm speaking. It's Unsomething by Aidan McCullen. Um, and essentially, it, that talks about jumping the S-curve. So the S-curve, you know, it, it, things go up and then they start to come down. And the idea is to jump before that S curve hits the floor. If like, I left it too long with my day job, the S curve was almost on the floor. And then I jumped and I had to start way down here. What the goal is, is to jump near, near enough the top and then move on to the next S curve. So at the moment I'm really getting into, like I said, you know, a lot of the AI stuff and I'm really looking at how can I jump into that? Undisruptible. Undisruptible, that is it by Aidan McCullough. A really that's a great book. Like I said, I read a lot of books, but so that's a good one. Undisruptible, how can we be that? And he talks, he he has a great phrase in there. And it's basically like when, it, when an industry is stagnant, they're all competing on price, the price is being driven to zero. And I'm like, oh, that sounds a bit like publishing right now. And I'm like, Let's look at what's next before it goes to zero. And a lot of authors, a lot of publishing houses finding income is going like this. So we have to jump onto the next thing,
1: uh, see what happens. I mean, I'm I'm so sorry that, I mean, I I can't make it better, but it makes me very cross to think that people have attacked you for, for actually what is an incredible strength. There are very few people who dare to pioneer Uh, particularly in an industry like publishing and the fact that you do that is made making it easier for so many of us to be able to approach something that we would otherwise find really quite tricky to navigate so oh thank you I appreciate that please please send them my way
2: (laughs) (laughs) well I think what's happened is I'm left with I drive people away like that AI art episode from last week that will drive more people away but the people who stay are the ones who are interested. And that's, you know, when we build our platforms and our audiences, we can only talk to people who are interested. So there are people who aren't listening to this anymore because they're not interested and that's fine. We all choose the things we're interested in and the creators we're interested in. And that's what we've got to think with building our platforms about books or whatever else we do. And people are here because of you two. They're not actually here because of me. They're here because of you two. And that's really important to remember That's why on my podcast at the beginning of every show, I do quite a long personal introduction uh, about things. And I put as much of me because someone told me it was only a couple of years into my podcast. They were like, can you talk about yourself more? And I'm like, what? I don't think anyone wants to hear about me. Um, And then I started to share more personal stuff. Like every week I share my writing, what I'm doing with my writing, what book I'm working on. Like I'm working on the pilgrimage book right now. Um, And I talk about the things I'm struggling with. And that's actually what most people come back for. They may or may not listen to the interview but what they want is you. So I would challenge you to. I don't know enough about how much you bring you into this community, but people are here because of you and you too. So that's important to remember as, as well. It's the host who attracts the repeat customer, not the guest.
0: Hmm. Thank you for that, Joanna. I think this is the, this is one of the questions we're sitting with as well: is, is how do we continue to inject ourselves in certain things but also remove ourselves from certain things um and yeah thank you for that uh that reflection um thanks i feel like i'm pensive right now i'm thinking about <laughs> thinking about it too deeply
1: yeah me too <laughs> me too you've just given me a lot to think about oh good good that's why i'm here <laughs> it's, it's a good
0: reminder yeah it is a good reminder to to continue to inject ourselves uh parl, and i think it's something we, we do we are challenged by a little bit um but a nice reminder. Mm, good. I'm curious, reflecting on the last decade plus as an author, entrepreneur, and everything you're doing, is there anything that you'd do differently?
2: I'm never one for, oh, no, wait, there's something I do differently, which is not related at all to this. Well, it kind of is. I would have started a pension a lot earlier, (laughs) which is a really funny thing, right? But I feel like so many people, as soon as I could... Afford uh, to start paying into a pension as an independent. I did, but what I this is another tip for my AI stuff. When I find something that I, that excites me that I really believe in in the future, I do now buy shares in companies. So I bought shares in Amazon years ago um, because I knew that I would that, that, that this company is an important company. Um, and so one thing I would have done earlier, but this is not to do with my creativity is I would be sure, more sure of my sense of what was going to happen because I, I've up until really until doing this Clifton strength things, I had so many doubts about, am I, do I really have some insight that maybe other people can't see. And now I realize it's literally from, I consume so much and then I find signals. I find signals in a mass of data, which potentially other people with other strengths can't see. Like like for example, I'm super low on empathy, (laughs) really low on empathy. So you put me in a room of people and I can't read the people but maybe that's something that you guys have. And that's why I struggle so much. I I mean, maybe I'm somewhere on the spectrum, but it's like literally I struggle with people, but I love loads of information. So I think I wish I had trusted my sense more um, and done some things that way and and put investments into things earlier.
0: Great advice. Start your pension earlier and trust yourself. Trust your gut. Love it. Joanna, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep, Keep going doing what you do
1: thank you so much thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast if you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft.
0: And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again.